Welcome to Those Hard Conversations. A platform dedicated to discussing solutions to the issues facing our most vulnerable and marginalized communities. We use a harm reduction approach to explore practical strategies for positive change in communities facing undeniable challenges. Hello, everyone, and welcome to those hard conversations. I'm Elvis Rosado. I'm Clayton Rooley. And we have a nice uh, conversation for you today. Um, we'll be talking about marijuana and some of the, the issues with legalization that have come up and the pros and cons and um, and just some of the stuff that we've learned in, in recently about what's happening with the whole situation. So It's a hazy um, subject. <laughs> it's a what? It's a, a hazy, hazy subject. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we, we know that this has been going on for a while and, and, you know, and even though that, um, there is, there is a trend to legalize it in most States today, you know, there have been some, some issues and then there's been some issues that I think, um, warrant a conversation because, um, I think that, well, let me just put it out there. So one of one of the things that that came up um, in a conference yesterday was the fact that um, there was a, a person speaking. This woman who who spoke, who was talking about the fact that she lost her son, you know, and the topic was marijuana killed my son. And it was this whole conversation about how she felt that marijuana was the reason that her son took his her, his life. Mind you, he did leave a note behind saying, um, marijuana killed, took my soul and killed my brain. I'm sorry I'm doing this. And that was his, 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 the note he left behind. But as you, as you listen to the conversation, you know, he had been hospitalized five times in mental hospitals. He had been in, in Iraq during the war. So it, there seems to be, have been this underlying mental health issues that may have gone untreated. He was probably using marijuana to self-medicate the, whatever it was, you know, that he was, he was struggling with. And then there's uh, they proceeded to talk about, you know, there's altogether, there's 35 families who have come together to form this group. And they all state that their child took their lives as a result of marijuana. And I, I and big, I, I have a big problem with that. Um, I don't think that any substance by itself is going to be the lead reason why someone um, passes um, or is not with us. I think there's underlying causes. And like we've said on previous episodes, I think the drug use or the risky behaviors are more of a symptom than the the problem itself. Um, yeah. But you can you can continue. Yeah, no, but it, but I agree with you. I mean, I, I you know I found it kind of um, concerning because you know of of how many people were claiming that marijuana was responsible for that person taking their life. Now, I also wonder, you know, I also had to wonder, was it easier or is it easier mm -hmm. for somebody to say 
marijuana is the reason my, that my son, you know, took their life or, or died or my child, as opposed to saying my child had a mental health issue that went untreated. And as a result of that, you know, because I think it's harder for people. It's just like, even when we, when we talked about overdoses in the past, you know, I remember doing a session some years ago and they had, when I asked how many of the individuals who have died of overdose, did they know what was in their system? And they said, no, because the families had reached out to the coroner's office or the, or the doctors and asked them not to put overdose as the cause of death because it would impact them negatively. And also it would affect their ability to get insurance um, claim. The, yes. The life insurance. Right. So it, it was something that it was easier for the family to cope with than to have that what they would consider a smear on that person's life as being, you know, that they, they were using drugs and they were quote unquote, an addict when they passed. And it just has this negative, you know, thing to it. But in this case, I think having saying something was mentally wrong with my, with my child or with my loved one is harder for them than to say they got, they got, you know, they got hooked on marijuana because they're calling it CUD cannabis use disorder. Mm, okay. You know, and yeah, that, that's I, the what? Yeah, I feel like, you know, marijuana is one of the few drugs that probably has less stigma than mental health does. And mental health has a heavy burden of stigma that comes attached with it. But marijuana, especially as we have moved more to our legalization model, um, is probably right alongside alcohol and alcoholism as far yeah. as being less stigmatized than, um, th than, you know, mental health. So I think that that's one issue. And then I would also say that, you know, who wants to reflect on themselves in the actions of either themselves or lack of actions of themselves or of their loved ones who have just passed or are not doing well, um, in a way that is, you know, I think negative towards them or the people that they love, opposed to, you know, blaming a substance, um, which is less stigmatized, um, but also still a substance and saying, well, that itself, the drug itself did the, the damage more than, you know, the, the, the lack of addressing needs of the individual that happened to use that substance. Um, if you understand what I'm saying. So yes. I think it's a unique situation right now. And I'm sure as we move further and further um, into uh, the different uses and, you know, legalization uh, in many more states um, or just, you know, the proliferation of the legalization in the states that it's currently in, I think we will see um, more concerns and more um, blaming of the substance. Um, in ways that we see with other drugs, um, because that's just how it goes, because we have, uh, you know, a major issue as we've talked about, and we'll talk about on, uh, you know, THC, uh, around like blaming symptoms of problems and not the problems themselves, um, and mental health and poverty and everything, uh, you know, that can be, you know, social determinants, um, definitely doesn't, typically come up to the forefront, it comes into like, everything is personal choice. Everything is uh, around um, 
what this thing does to you, not what you can do with it. Um, so, um, yeah, it's a challenge. And, you know, and I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I, I, I also think that like everything else, you know, I mean, you mentioned alcohol, you know, you have people who socially drink and, and they're fine. And you have some people who unfortunately drink and it destroys their lives because that becomes their main to do. You know, and like, you know, I, I always say there's nothing wrong with you having a drink. If you're socializing, there is something wrong with you having a drink. If you're depressed and you want to feel better, because what you're doing is using the alcohol as a, as a, as a, you know, to a feel better. But even, even with this, I mean, I, I do believe that some people can go a little overboard and it becomes their primary thing to do all day long. And that's all they want to do. But that's that's the case with food. That's the case with sex. Anything. That's the case with gambling. Yeah, anything. So it's just you know, it, but it's it's not the marijuana itself. It's something within the person, an addictive personality or disorder. Something else is going on that causes that person to just want to do. This. I mean, some people do it with video games. That's all they want to do is play video games all day long. Right. You know. I mean, I would say use the drug. Don't let the drug use you. Yeah. And find a balance between using and and being used. Um, if it's robbing you of your livelihood, if it's robbing you of uh, your ability to make thoughtful decisions, if it's robbing you of your relationships, if it's robbing you financially um, and, and time wise, you know, it's something that you need to get in check. And I know with certain drugs, it's seems like it's easier than other drugs. And, you know, I think there's obviously a, a, a physiological, um, you know, principle to that notion. Um, but, you know, I don't think that you can remove, you know, um, also just like your mental approach to using the substance um, as well. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I think, you know, initially with most folks, especially with marijuana, you do want to try and do almost everything that you, you know, have done, uh, you know, I would say, you know, in abstinence all of a sudden now under the influence of marijuana. Um, it's one of the most popular like teenage drugs and that can typically continues throughout uh, a good amount of people's lives because of that, you know, eating when you're high, uh, being at an amusement park when you're high, uh, watching a movie when you're high, so on and so on and so forth. I think eventually most people get to a point where, okay, I've done this under the influence. Either it felt great and I can say I did it and I won't do it all the time, but I know what it feels like, or uh, I didn't have a great experience with it. And I know that I don't want to do it in this situations or circumstances, or you have the folks that I think go to the extreme, just like with, you know, some other substances that say everything that I do, I want to do it in here in this condition, um, whether it's fruitful for me or it's not fruitful for me and, you know, have a hard time because of other things that's going on in their life, uh, being able to like, you know, rationale, you know, the justification for doing it um, and, and whether it's right or wrong for them. It just becomes like a living, breathing part of their life. Um, and, and so, you know, I think that folks should always try to find that balance and try to get to not just what people are doing, 
but why people are doing it. And I think it's, you know, getting back to your original uh, mention of this group, um, I think it's important that you don't scapegoat the drug itself for what's going on in many of the folks' lives who have been affected um, and unfortunately have, uh, you know, maybe succumbed to uh, their life or, you know, lost life or their life have changed. Like, yes, you know, did using help their cause? You know, maybe in some ways, yes, maybe in a lot of ways, no. But there's typically going to be underlying factors that I just don't think get addressed when you say, well, marijuana killed my drug. Now, if you want to include that with two their or son. three or four, yeah, their son. Uh, yeah, marijuana killed my son. If you want to add like three or four other things like mental health, uh, discrimination, um, you know, sexual abuse. I mean, I'm not sure about the specifics of this person, but if you want to add everything that, you know, parlayed, uh, that person's life and then say drug use on top of it added on. That's one thing. If you only blame the sub the substance, um, I think it gives a really, um, you know, bad, you know, view of, of drugs. They don't have, they're powerful, but, um, I do think that, you know, self-determination plays a factor as well. Yeah. And I, and I think that, um, I mean, I, you and I have had the, the, I don't know if I want to call it the privilege, the misfortune of being witness to the fact that mental health in this country is not on the top of the list of things to address or treat properly. I mean, I, I think we've gone backwards for many, many years. We've gone backwards in the way we treat people with mental health issues. And um, I, I think that's played a huge part because it's, it's, I don't know. I, I, I don't think just like addiction or, or, you know, substance use disorder, I don't think we do enough to take care and provide for individuals in need of each treatment as we could or should, you know, and I think that also plays a huge part. I mean, this guy was supposedly somebody who was a veteran. He was in Iraq, you know, and came back and wanted to go to school and everything else and unraveled somewhere you know, he obviously, he, there's a good possibility he had, because he did, he did witness action PTSD. in Iraq. He probably had some PTSD. Right. And I think that as a veteran, the government had a responsibility to be a little bit more invested in making sure, I mean, they estimate that 22 people, 22 veterans, war veterans take their lives every single day in this country. Hmm. You know, and that's something that um, I don't think they're all smoking weed. And even if there was, I don't if they even if they were, I don't think 22 people who take their lives every single day because of the 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 trauma they they witnessed in in war. I don't think the marijuana was the reason they did it. I think the fact that they couldn't silence the demons or the voices may have been what played a huge part in somebody wanting to take them, you know, to take their own life. So. Yeah, it's always interesting because, you know, there is self-determination and self-empowerment. I mean, I definitely, and I know you have, we've seen people that, you know, didn't have the access to resources or didn't have the connections um, and di or didn't know, you know, that they were available. And that's like, you know, troubling to see. And then we also see folks who do have the access, but maybe the access doesn't come in the shape form or fashion that they want. And so they don't access the services as well. And it's like, where's that balance between, you know, we want you to remain independent, but we also want you to have, 
thorough coverage um, or thorough, um, yeah, coverage and and support. Um, do you require people who come back from war sites to do a battery of you know testing and regular check-ins? Um, you know, for I guess benefit verification, or how do you tie in? Um, the need to be supportive or the want to be supportive for folks with some folks who, you know, feel like, and I would say rightfully so I'm, you know, a free person. And if I don't want to check in for that, I don't, but then later on you hear that they're a veteran and that they didn't check in, you know, and and now it's like, you know, blame the, the veteran administration. Um, for instance. I mean, and that's just one small circumstance. I'm just saying, you know, there's always a, a point and counterpoint to um, the responsibility of the individual um, and responsibility uh, of like their families and then also a larger, uh, you know, production, i.e. the army, i.e. or armed forces, i.e. like, you know, job work, you know, workplace responsibility. You know, yeah. it's like you can lead people to the, the stream, but can you make them drink? Um, and then obviously on the other end, sometimes there is no stream to drink out of. And I think that's where you can definitely say like, hey, there has to be more. Um, yeah, it's one of those. So, yeah, some so people self-medicate, them, you know. Yeah, you lead them to the stream and then you leave them there and go, OK, you have to wait. The water eventually will come past you. Right. Right. Yeah. So what were some other interesting things about the the conference and and the talk? Um, Well, these are some of the other things that came up. Right. Um, And I and I'm looking at this and wondering what is what is their their criteria for this one section? It says there was a 20. They said there was a 25 percent increase in cannabis use disorder among 12 to 17 year olds in the legal states. There was an increase of 25 percent use. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking when they say cannabis use disorder, are they referring to people who smoke or are they referring to people who checked into a clinic because I can't stop smoking and I can't stop chasing the smoke, you know, and I, and I'm curious to what their, what their, um, Qualifications. You know, how, they, how they define right. cannabis use disorder. Yeah. I mean, you know. I think even thinking about some of the language um, from the Office of National Drug Control Policy um, around like substance use disorder versus substance use or substance users, people use substances. I do think it's important that folks recognize that just because you use a substance doesn't make you uh, someone with a disorder. And so, yeah, qualifying that. Um, and hopefully it's towards your ladder and not the former definition as far as like, OK, I've actually checked myself in, said, hey, I want help for marijuana. I can't stop using marijuana. It has to be a part of my life every day. If I don't, this happens to me. I don't feel motivated. If they're talking about people in that qualification, then I would say, OK, that's a definition of someone with the I guess you said CUD diagnosis that I would be more accepting of. If it's just someone who, you know, says, hey, I smoke weed and I'm 13 years old um, or I'm 17 years old, whatever those qualifications you mentioned were, then I'm like, okay, that doesn't, that should not, you know, be someone who has cannabis use disorder, you know, the the key word is disorder, you know what I mean? 
Yes. And we also have to take, and, and you and I have had this conversation before, but we have to take into consideration that a lot of people don't take into, they, they don't take into consideration how the weed is being smoked. So remind, remembering that, and, and I'm looking, you know, I was looking at the numbers because they estimate that in 2008, um, marijuana potency was 8.9%. And by 2017, it was up 17.1%. And then concentrated potency went from 6.7% in 2008 to 55.7% in 2017. And that I understand. And that might play a part in some of the other situations. But when you're talking about consumption, you know, there's people who smoke in a bowl, but especially within our communities, most people tend to smoke in a blunt. And when you're smoking, marijuana in in a wrap in a tobacco wrapper you're talking about the intake i mean a cigar is the the equivalence of about three cigarettes if you smoke it the way that it was designed to be smoked if you cut it open and take out the processed tobacco and you use the pure tobacco leaf to roll it up you're almost at, at the equivalence of a pack of cigarettes for each blunt that you smoke because now you're inhaling and holding it and you're consuming all this pure nicotine and what you see is that where in the 60s and 70s, somebody smoked a joint, buzz most of the day, and, and a bag of weed would last you a week. You now have a situation where every 15, 20 minutes, somebody wants to smoke. And I don't think that's you know more about the marijuana as much as it is the amount of nicotine that they're taking in. And they're actually chasing the nicotine from the cigar that they're consuming rather than the marijuana. And then in that situation, I can see somebody saying, I want to stop and I can't. And they don't realize it's not the marijuana, it's the way the person is smoking it. But the person who's providing the therapy or making the, the conscious decision that you have cannabis use disorder might not take into consideration the amount of nicotine that that person is consuming when they smoke a blunt. That's a great point, Elvis. And I think it's also important to recognize that, you know, smoking versus, you know, eating, you know, edibles is also another, you know, major yes. difference in how, you know, the marijuana is ingested. Um, you know, edibles, you know, are a lot more potent uh, typically uh, than, than, you know, smoking is. And I don't think that people realize it. Also, especially if you're someone in a state where it's not legal, um, it's easier to, you know, like be out in public and eat a piece of brownie or a gummy bear or something like that and, and you know, not smell like marijuana, not have to deal with the side eyes that you might look uh, get if you are like smoking, a, a, you know, a marijuana filled cigar. Um, and, and, you know, folks don't, you know, I think about how, you know, ingestion or routes of administration are important towards you know, uh, you know, marijuana uh, usage as well. Um, and, you know, it, it's also just like, you know, as we come out of the, the dark cave and we think about marijuana and its legalization, um, whether it's, you know, uh, in the you know states that's legal or just, you know, there's the fact that there's more access points because there are states where it's legal and even folks who live in illegal states can access those states more often. Mm -hmm. Um, like via interstate commerce, um, even though technically it's illegal to bring it back, you know, to where they're from, you know, the potency, um, you know, it's kind of like, you know, how beer uh, has exploded, um, you know, on the scene. You know, there's not just, you know, a handful of, you know, regular beers that you can have. There's, 
you know, craft beers everywhere and they'd have different potency. You can try them with different, you know, uh, you know, uh, herbs and, and uh, you know, different flavors, different, you know, strengths. Um, and marijuana is going to be the same. It's becoming very boutique. Um, and the question is, is do, do some people have more of the ability to be as boutique-ish, for lack of a better word, as other people do? The answer is no. And so can the people who don't have access have the same quality of marijuana um, as other people you know, would? Um, and the answer is no. Um, you know, marijuana now can be for, you know, uh, obviously, you know, longer term conditions like chronic pain, um, you know, someone who has cancer, someone who has broken bones. I mean, you know, I think in many ways it could replace, uh, you know, whether it's long term treatment or short term treatment, the opiate as far as pain uh, goes. But it could also be for things like, you know, mental reflection and wellness. It can be around sleeping. It can be around energy. There are different strains that do different things, um, which I think leads to a bigger point, which is like, are we doing justice um, by, you know, legalizing it in some states versus other states as opposed to a national policy? Um, and also, um, how does that tie into overall legalization uh, of of drugs, um, at least to the point where, you know, we don't have folks doing synthetic drugs like the K2s of the world, um, which we know has the potential to have more additives, including, you know, the big boy, which is fentanyl right now because yep. of uh, the illegalization um, continuancy uh, of marijuana uh, in some places. Um, so it's like, you know, definitely, you know, a big picture, um, you know, that, you know, needs to be addressed more often because like most things, it, it tends to be more black and brown uh, and impoverished people and gender minorities that suffer from a lack of consistency uh, with policies. It doesn't mean that, you know, those groups are the end all be all of it, um, but they definitely tend to, you know, suffer more than, than others do. Yeah, and I and I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna touch on that in a little bit. I'm gonna have a conversation with you about that in a minute. But I wanted to give you some other stats that they had put out. I mean, Colorado, since their legalization, um fatalities at car fatalities, you know, driver fatalities have gone up about they've had like uh looks like two hundred cases in twenty seventeen, about three hundred cases in twenty eighteen where it used to be in 2008, they had a lot of accidents where the person had marijuana in their system when they were tested, but they survived. And then after the legalization from 2013 to through 2018, the amount of people who died in car crashes who had marijuana in their systems had gone up dramatically. And then um, they report, Colorado reported a 101% increase in marijuana hospitalizations since the legalization, Alaska had had reported a 45% increase. And then it's kind of interesting because, for instance, Oregon, they have 82 stores that sell marijuana, but they only have one person, is one compliance officer to monitor 83 stores, 83 businesses. 
So, you know, they talk about the the fact that some people are um moving, you know, using the marijuana differently and they and it's like you said, it's going to other states and it's being sold on the black market and whatnot. But you got one person monitoring these stores. And then um it, it's I find it interesting, right? You mentioned you mentioned uh, um, black and brown communities, and this is one of the things that I learned yesterday. So, Philip Morris, among other tobacco companies, so is Juul, the ones that make the vapes. They have actually invested billions of dollars into the marijuana industry, and what they're trying to do is move in and take over the selling of the marijuana and get away from the cigarettes, you know, and they've literally have monopolized the, the, the business to an extent. And, um, and I found it interesting because they were talking about the fact that for instance, we want to make marijuana legal in Pennsylvania. The politicians get together and they have these conversations and they decide they're going to pass legislation. What some of these States did where they legalized was, it was agreed upon, we're going to make it legal, but they implemented a policy of prohibition in suburban areas. So what they did was they blocked it. You cannot put a marijuana store in the suburbs, but you can have them in the inner city as much as you want. And they found that 30%, there was a 30% of the, of the smokers that were consuming 80% of the actual marijuana. And most of them were in minority, you know, people of color communities. And it's kind of interesting. They found that less than 20% of the stores were managed or owned by minorities. And it, were even, it was less than 4% managed and owned by African-Americans. And I found it interesting that they've managed to monopolize before behind the scenes and the legalization happening, they managed to monopolize the fact that they were going to control what neighborhoods you can sell it in. Now, they don't, it doesn't say that somebody from the suburbs can't come down to the inner city and buy, but you can't have a store in the suburbs, you know, in those communities because they don't want them there. Mm. And I was like, it's interesting that they didn't give inner city folk or, or people of color or impoverished individuals because there's, there's plenty of uh, poor white people too. So, but they didn't right. give the poor communities the opportunity to decide if they wanted it in their neighborhood or not. And it's that same concept where, you know, we talk about the, um, the, the, the quick beer for places. Stop and goes. Yeah. The stop and goes. They're everywhere. And, you know, you mentioned something in a conversation we had in the past about the uh, these little um, stop and go stores where you can get chips and candy and cigarettes and and I was riding past Kensington yesterday and I realized that we have three new stores that just sell candy and cigarettes and chips and single and serve like, wow, yeah they're popping up everywhere right and there's you not know, a major concern about those as much as it is um, you know for other you know service providers or, or, you know, small businesses alarmingly um, because a lot of times it does lead to other concerns like trash and waste and other things. Um, but um, yeah, this is like, you know, a, a really big deal. I mean, the first thing, you know, that it makes me think of is when you mention 
that, you know, there are, you know, those accidents in Colorado with, you know, more people with marijuana, you know, the first thing that I think of is first off, marijuana stays in your system longer. Yeah. Um, so we do have to make acknowledgement of that. Um, I'd be interested to see what the concentration was as compared to, you know, whether it was in your system or not. Um, I would think that would be more of a, a telltale. Um, uh, the other thing, and I'm sure, or maybe you, you know, have some statistics on it, is the profit margin um, with marijuana being legalized in Colorado and what that has uh, been able to, uh, you know, benefit. Um, uh, and, you know, weighing out like the cost benefit analysis of legalization with the ability to, for instance, put into, uh, let's say, education. Um, and it could be education as far as like K to 12 schools, um, but it also could be education around, you know, drug awareness and all that as well. Um, you know, if you are trying to make, you know, money hand over fist for your state's economy or your local economy, um, but you also don't consider that, you know, you also are going to have on the back end the need to do more outreach and education around the realities of using um, these substances, which are now legal and more readily available, then you're absolutely fooling yourself. You're absolutely fooling yourself. Um, so it's like, once again, like, are we putting or are the people in these states where it's legal actually doing due diligence, putting the cart before, or are they just putting the cart before the horse and saying, well, now that it's legal, um, it's a new cash cow, but there's no backup uh, awareness campaign or more places for folks to, um, you know, get help if they need it. Um, like you were mentioning more supervision, um, and, and, uh, you know, the States to make sure that, you know, the product is quality, um, that does not have any adulterants, um, uh, or additives that could be harmful to folks. Uh, so these hospitalizations are happening, uh, under the eyes of, you know, what's supposed to be legal. Um, these are all questions that need to come uh, into play um, as we start to move forward, um, you know, with, you know, legalization. Um, you know, you don't want it to be where you have like, let's say a prohibition, uh, like, you know, set up where folks are basically making their own strands of, in this case, marijuana, as opposed to alcohol, um, but, you know, you're doing it in an actual legal setting because you're not uh, as aware of how marijuana works um, as opposed to, uh, let's say, you know, alcohol and legalization. So it's like basically trying to catch up with the science and also yeah. making sure that you are um, putting the dollars that you are making, um, which I'm supportive of um, as far as, you know, the benefits of legalization and actually putting it to, you know, programming. And on a larger scale, it's the same thing that folks are trying to advocate for right now with these opioid, um, you know, uh, settlements. It's like, you know, you don't want to, you know, get $500 million in a settlement from a big pharma corporation like Purdue and then say, well, we're going to do the same thing that we've been doing and not look um, to do something different. Yeah in attempts to end a war on drugs type of approach to drug use. 
So that's where a lot of advocacy uh, before like the money hits the ground is coming out. Like more policing is not going to, you know, help, you know, uh, with this, like, you know, getting more community engagement and different organizations and better campaigns and more harm reduction approach is something that a lot of folks are advocating for with money like this. And, you know, I would say damn right to that. And it's it's interesting, too, that um. So part of the discussion yesterday, and, and and it was kind of, I found it kind of interesting, you know, marijuana was legalized. You can buy it at the shop. But certain people who had shops were also trying to farm their own marijuana so they wouldn't have to pay the prices they were paying to get it. And that's actually frowned upon. They, they actually will shut you down if they find out you're trying to cultivate your own and grow your own marijuana. So I found it interesting that once again, it's, you know, I, I understand that they want to control it. And because they were saying they want to monitor and make sure that people are not using harmful pesticides and all this other stuff. But you also have where what's happening is it's becoming this regulated where, where um, big brother or big tobacco in this case, because like I said, uh, Philip Morris is one of the ones that's involved. They created a separate organization that's not called Philip Morris so that people, you know, kind of people won't realize that it's them. But when you start to check, like they were saying yesterday, they have their hands in there up to their elbows already and they're making huge profits from it. But I find it interesting that in the same conversation where they're talking about the legalization of marijuana and everything else, they also present it where in 2019, the DEA confiscated 3,232,722 outdoor marijuana plants. They confiscated or eradicated, they're using the word eradicated, 770,472 plants indoors. And they took 29, they took greater than $29 million in assets from those people for growing marijuana. And, and I find it interesting that, you know, I, I'm, they arrested 4,718 people and confiscated 3,210 weapons. But I find it interesting that in the same conversations where we're looking to legalize marijuana <clears throat> and big industry is going to run it, they're also arresting and penalizing people for growing their own. Now, Colorado used to allow you to, I think it was 20-something plants you were allowed to, to have for your self-use. Now they took it down to 12. You can't have more than 12 plants for your own consumption. And I think this is them realizing, wait, if we're going to let people grow their own marijuana and we're selling it, it's going to cut into our business because if you can grow your own, why would you want to pay for it? You know, and it's and it's in the end, it's going to be just like anything else where We'll sell it to you, but you're not allowed to grow your own. Yeah. And I think the unintended consequences, you know, a yes, you can, you know, uh, you know, sell uh, and obviously on the ground level purchase marijuana. But what does it do to the economy uh, on the ground as far as the dealing goes? Um, and, and, you know, some people, especially in communities that have been ravaged by drug dealing, um, I think would be very happy to not see drug dealers, but if we don't provide 
the resources and the educational opportunities and the job opportunities for folks who have been left in the cold um, to actually turn, you know, what was in many ways, you know, a, a time to hustle into a time to be productive in other ways legally. Um, what what those people now start to do? Um, that I think that's like the interesting thing. So it comes back around to, like I said before, like, you know, the drugs and the drug using and the drug dealing being more of a symptom of a larger problem, which is, you know, many things. But, you know, if we speak about what, you know, I think me and you see, uh, especially in Kensington, um, but in other places around the city and obviously the state, the country and the world, um, a lot of times poverty, mental health, um, abuse uh, in many shape, forms and fashion. Uh, what are we doing to empower people, um, you know, to to have means to be successful um, besides, you know, doing the side hustle, the under the table stuff, the full time hustle, especially as we get to more uh, avenues of legalization that take away from that, you know, that opportunity uh, for the hustle. Um, yep. That that will be interesting, especially as we, you know, see hopefully some f- more flowing of money coming into communities, whether it's through this administration and our attempts to, you know, I think get back to some prosperity after um, this COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and then also funds that's coming in from uh, settlements with big pharma. Like, how do we not just make it about the, the 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 prevention side of things on the drug side of things, but also be proactive to ensure that um, we have systems in place uh, long term that can withstand a, a, a health crisis, um, an economic crisis, um, and some of those unthought of. Um, major concerns that we are we've seen especially in the last year um and for the people who are hurt the hardest because they've already been living in poverty um even if they were working a full-time job or a part-time job or not using drugs or not homeless you know how do we protect them better and then how do we protect those folks who are homeless are using drugs um aren't working um, do have disabilities, do have mental health issues. How do we, you know, kind of wrap them up um, and not and not in, in an enabling way, but in a powering way um, where there are many options and choices for folks and many ways to be successful, um, which will not only benefit them, but benefit the communities that they live in and around and therefore all of us as human being, I mean, human beings. Um, all those are, I think, those hard conversations that, you know, need to happen. Um, and yet sometimes it seems like, as we always say, um, it makes too much sense for them to happen because why hasn't it happened uh, in full-fledged yet? Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, so Colorado, apparently since the onset of their legalization, had already acquired a billion dollars in taxes and tax revenue. You know, and I'm, I'm I'm curious to know how that money has been implemented, because, again, you know, what what's, what starts to happen is that 
just like everything else, hardworking people, people in, in low-income communities end up paying the bulk of the money that's spent on, on stuff like this, on alcohol and marijuana. And, you know, I always say it's, it's a chemical vacation for poor people because they can't afford to go on vacation. So they take a chemical vacation, but you know, it's, it's just interesting. They, one of the other things that talked about, which kind of hit home because again, I, we've had this conversation before, but they were saying, you know, there's a lot of people who, because marijuana was legalized, believe that now it's okay for me to go smoke. But what they don't realize is your employer doesn't accept it. And if you get hit with a urine at work, you could still lose your job for having marijuana in your system, which affects a lot of blue collar workers, people who right. are operating machinery, who work in factories, right. who, you know, I mean, you know, delivery folks and anybody who's driving anything or working and not even that because you don't even have to be driving. If your boss, if your if your company has a policy of no drugs and they still consider marijuana a drug, you're gonna you possibly can still lose your job. And the sad part is, you know, you can go out Friday night and get plastered drunk and still go to work on Monday and you'd be okay. You smoke, you smoke weed on a Friday night, and next week they hit you with a urine, you're still gonna lose your job because it's still in your system, even though you smoked it a week ago. Yeah. So this is like the, yeah, this is like the long ranging effects where you actually have to have the legalization be followed by policies in the workplace that give, like I said earlier, that benefit to percentage where they could determine, okay, this person has, you know, this much percent of marijuana in their system, but we have a scale that says, okay, basically that is this equivalent of the amount of marijuana you know, compared to if they like, let's say use this morning compared to they use last week or they used over the weekend. There needs to be, you know, people who are very informed around that uh, for the workplace, you know, because, yeah, you're right. If it's legal uh, and people have access to it, it doesn't mean that there aren't company standards around having it in the system. But unlike alcohol, it doesn't just waste away you know, within, you know, 12 to 24 hours or 24 to 36 hours, it stays in your system for, you know, in a lot of cases, at least a couple of weeks to a month. And yeah. it'll be, uh, I think, up to, you know, major HR departments and legal, you know, uh, legal outfitting uh, in businesses and companies um, to like taking consideration, you know, all of that and beyond to, you know, ensure um, that, you know, uh, their bases are covered um, because, you know, uh, although it could be beneficial for the company, they could definitely lose a lot of talented people if they just wanted to base like, you know, keeping someone employed on whether someone had marijuana on its own without considering the, the, the let's say the THC or the cannabis uh, concentration to figure out like how long it was since the person last smoked. I mean, there's obviously some things that you don't want to do. Like you said, working in heavy machinery, um, you know, you, you, you do require the person to be on point. You don't say like you can come to work drunk, uh, in most job, uh, placements, but the difference is like, how can I, you know, um, hold someone accountable, 
Um, in the case of marijuana, just saying it's in your system, so you lose your job. Um, not only is it bad for the individual and the people around the individual who are working because now they have to fill the slack, but you know, I'm sure in the Colorados and other states where it's been legal, um, whether that's you know brand new legal or legal for a while, it's going to lead to HR having to do a whole lot more work uh, to bring in people consistently um, just based on it being in your system as compared to the concentration in your system. Yeah. And, and it, it's just, uh, you know, it, it makes me think because like, for instance, the other, one of the other things that came up was, and I'm, and I'm being cynical at this point, you know, the, the, the mellowing of, uh, poor communities and kind of putting people to sleep and get, you know, making sure they have access to the weed and they're mellow and losing other rights. You know, because you could lose your job. And and also in some cases, when in, in all cases, if you have a license to carry, for instance, a firearm and you decide that you want to get a, a card to be able to purchase marijuana, you have to give up your license to carry and give up your gun. You know, which I find interesting. And it's like, OK, that's one way of disarming a community and disarming a people, you know, but. I also find it interesting that you can, you don't have to give up your driver's license, which is a deadlier weapon if you're under the influence, your car, than a gun would be. But you don't have to give up your driver's license. You have to agree that you're not going to drive while under the influence, but you have to give up your gun. And I find that kind of, just kind of interesting that they went there, you know? And I wonder what other, what other little, trinkets are hidden within these policies that we yet have yet not learned about that are later come out and be like, wait, so all these other things were put into there that nobody knew about because everybody was focused on the fact that we can now smoke weed because it's legal. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the, the devil's in the details always. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one thing that, you know, I'll say is why does it take, you know, you being caught with marijuana or getting into a bad position uh, around marijuana to, you know, talk about some sort of, you know, gun legislation um, or gun, you know, take away mm-hmm. um, when in most states cases, you know, because we've clearly seen, you know, outside of this particular topic, many incidents, you know, around gun violence, um, you know, it's much easier to get a gun than it probably is to get a, a, a license to use marijuana, at least on the medical side of things. You yeah. Know? Um, and, and, you know, one day we'll, I think, share a list, you know, uh, that, you know, I think me and you came up with in another yeah. setting around how easy it is uh, to get a gun can, in comparison uh, with, you know, other things that you have to really, uh, you know, hustle to get. But why do they like loop into this language that, oh, because you have, you know, marijuana incident, you know, that could be charged as a crime, you're going to get your gun taken away. But uh, there's no like initial upfront assessment or at least not, you know, to where I think most people in this country feel like there's not enough background checking happening uh, to ensure that in general, if you want to possess you know, a firearm, especially, you know, particular types of firearms um, that you aren't vetted 
uh, on a much uh, more restricted uh, process, you know, like not, you know, not trying to like go against the Second Amendment for Second Amendment purposes, um, but actually just to say like, hey, we recognize that unfortunately um, we've seen a lot of people die because of a lack of accountability for folks who have guns. So if that means that we have to like, you know, be a drill sergeant around this for the safety of folks on a larger scale, this is what we have to do. Like, don't bring up, you know, the, the world regulated, you know, militia talk um, uh, around uh, the safety of the overall people. Um, yeah. You know, but think it's a about big that. deal. Think about it for a second. You know, if you want to smoke marijuana and you and you have a license to carry, you have to give up your firearm. But you know how many people have committed a heinous crime with a gun because they were under the influence of alcohol and they had a license to carry. There's people who have gotten caught drinking and driving multiple times and have lost their driver's license because of, you know, obviously that's somebody who tends to be a little bit reckless in the sense that if you've lost your license completely because of the amount of accidents you got into for drinking and driving or, you know, for being that intoxicated while you were drinking and driving, they took your driving privileges away, but you were still allowed to keep your gun privilege. And it's like, you're more likely to do something stupid when you're completely drunk and have a firearm than you would if you had smoked some weed and you had a gun. I mean, I, I've, never, I've never seen anybody, you know, smoke weed and go on a rampage killing people. Never seen it, never heard of it. You know, might, but yet they might go on a rampage, you know, to the Wawa or the Seven Eleven. You know what I mean? <laughs> and the rampage the cup, <laughs> yeah, the cup, the cupcake section. <laughs> you know, but uh, yeah, I, I tend to agree with you there. Um, yeah, I, I think it's uh, really twisted, and it kind of reminds me of like you know the reefer madness type of uh, thinking when it comes to marijuana where it's like you know if you smoke marijuana you know it's like you just lose all sense of being a human being and mm-hmm. now you're a uh, you know potential you know person to murder to to rape to steal to you know do everything you know negative um but alcohol is is you know is okay that's just a natural flow thing it's like you know our bodies naturally have you know alcohol flowing through its system so you know we can't regulate that in the same vein um just like we can't regulate guns in the same vein as we can regulate this this drug we've been fighting so hard to criminalize even though we know it has more benefits um you know health wise when used correctly um than any alcohol has typically ever had and it was close. To, it's interesting because it was close to being legalized in the 70s. And then they did this about face and then it became completely, you know, unacceptable. But I wanted I wanted to share something that I, you know, because on their page I was scrolling. And um, and it's interesting that earlier they mentioned there was a 25 percent increase. You no, know, not that one. They mentioned the, the whole fatality and how it went up, you know, how, how much the fatalities where people had marijuana in their system. One, it doesn't tell you whether it was edibles or whether it was smoked or the, or the levels of the THC. But then later on, there's a little box that just happens to mention, for instance, in Colorado, 
45% of drivers who tested positive for marijuana also had a blood alcohol level of 0.8 or higher. So it's like, okay, so you had somebody who crashed and, and died and they had marijuana in their system, but you're not also stating what else was in their system when they crashed and died. You know, this 45% of drivers who had who also had alcohol, uh, uh, you know, a blood alcohol level of 0 0.8, uh, or 0.8, I mean, and it, it to me is like, okay, so what else was, what else happened? So could it have been that they were drinking and driving when they crashed and died and just so happened the marijuana was also in their system? Or was it people who were just using marijuana when they crashed and died? Well, they're telling you, they're telling you, you know, that it's the, you know, former and not the latter, because obviously the marijuana stayed in their system longer than yeah. the alcohol would have. So, you know, it's like who's controlling, you know, the narrative? You know, if it's a company that or, or organization, a group that's against, you know, the marijuana legalization um, piece of it, um, you know, do you want to, you know, make it about marijuana being in the system? Or if you're like an alcohol, um, anti-alcohol, you know, uh, you know, don't drink and drive per se organization, do, are you going to mention that the alcohol was in the system or do you just go into the middle and just say it, you know, how it is, which is, yeah, like there's a lot of cases where people do polysubstance drug use and, you know, they smoke a little bit of weed and they go out and have some drinks. And, you know, I guess the next step for me would be, you know, the people who are getting stopped with marijuana, tell me on the day that you did the blood test, if they had alcohol in their system, then you can tease out whether the, the marijuana use was the real culprit to, you know, the accident or the, the driving under the influence, um, as opposed to like not mentioning one, but they're clearly being a combination of both. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and again, you know, I, I think that unfortunately, um, unfortunately, they're lumping they're lumping edibles and marijuana for instance in the same context and we've talked about this before where you know smoking marijuana you retain about 15% of the THC but when you're consuming it in edibles you retain about 65% or more of the of the THC which causes a more intoxicating effect and i think you know they had a they had a thing here about hospitalizations going up <clears throat> and even poison control calls having gone up. But from talking to people and hearing people's stories, a lot of times it's overconsumption because, for instance, somebody takes a gummy and they look at it and they see this tiny little thing and they think this is no big deal. It's cute too. One is, yeah, let me take two or three. And now all of a sudden they're twisted and have no idea what happened because they weren't expecting that reaction. You know, you're talking about they're making candies, they're making lollipops, they're making drinks. There are um, the beer industry is now producing marijuana beer, which I, I find that kind of interesting how that's going to go when somebody goes into a bar and has a beer that's made with marijuana. And now it's they test positive for marijuana. And it's like, but I had a beer. Well, <laughs> technically, I had a beer, but because of what was in it, I could lose my job today or, you know, and it, and it's just this. It was called Wheaties. What do you think? 
<laughs> but it's it, I find it, you know, I just find it interesting how and to the levels they've gone, because I saw something yesterday that I had not seen before, and that is that they're taking THC and like literally the the person presented it as marijuana crack, right? Because they're taking it and they're making it into rock form where you can just drop the rock in a in a pipe and smoke it. Just like you would crack. Yeah. And it, it's just pure THC. That is a whole nother beast when you're talking yeah. about smoking marijuana. You know, and, and they're selling these things in the in the smoke shops, in the in the you know, in the marijuana stores. So we went, we took something from legalizing it for people to be able to smoke. And now created all these other products that are, you know, probably 10 times more, more potent or 100 times more powerful than smoking it. But they're still blaming it on the marijuana. And at this but, point, it's not the marijuana. It's what you did with the marijuana after you became legal. Yeah, they're bastardizing the grass, you know. Yeah. You know, they're turning it into an opportunity to profit on it in every shape, form, or fashion they can possibly do it now because of the legalization. And, you know, that that's, that's uh, well, that's America. That's capitalism. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, and it's, it's, it's purest form uh, for sure. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's crazy. Rock, rocks of THC. Yeah, let me read this to you because I find this kind of interesting. Go ahead. I'm just going to read a small portion. It says, former Purdue Pharma executive John Stewart left the pharmaceutical industry and created his own marijuana company, Murphy, in 2016. Teva Pharmaceuticals signed an agreement to become a medical marijuana distributor in Israel and Sandoz, I have no idea where that is, it's a subsidiary of Novartis, signed an agreement with Tilry distributors, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Constellations Brands, maker of Corona, purchased 9.9% stake in Canopy Growth for 191 billion, 191 million, then up the stake to 38%, and in 2018 made $4 billion from 191 million investment. And then uh, the other one, uh, the other investors made 5 billion. Oh, sheets. Ain't that interesting? Aren't they like a Wawa type of thing? Yeah. Sheets is yeah. Uh, like a convenience store, gas station uh, yeah. chain. Yep. In 2018. So, and, and, and this is, and these are the, Anheuser Busch is involved in this. So all these, all these big manufacturers, all these individual, Molson's, Coors, Blue Moon, all these individuals are invested now in making money yeah. from legalization of marijuana. And, and it's interesting how, <clears throat> once again, the billionaires, the, the biggest industries, made sure that they monopolized the, you know, the, 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 the business. And then, because I remember here, before we had our first medical marijuana uh, place in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, that a week before the proposals were due is when it was announced to the public that if you wanted to invest or if you wanted to open one up, you could, you had a week to put your stuff in, but you had to get a, 
license and permit and a building and da 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 and have a plan. But they only gave people a week to get their act together where the major investors had already had months and months and months to prepare for it. You know, and that was their way of saying, well, you know what? We have to say that we gave the average person an opportunity to, to put in a bid or it looks like we monopolized. But a week didn't give anybody time to do anything. You know, how, no, how do you get a building and a license and everything in a week? Yeah, especially if you don't have the money to get the lawyers to yeah. do the combing of, of documentation and fill out the forms. Yeah, I mean, once again, it uh, keeps people out in the cold and it benefits those who have money um, typically, you know, more often than not have a typical hue uh, of skin color. Um, and, and, you know, yeah, it just speaks to, you know, uh, in, injustice and inequality uh, in general. Um, but I do want to mention that one thing that, you know, needs to happen, which I've been happy to see is as states have been legalizing marijuana, and there's two in particular that I want to say uh, just legalize marijuana, um, New York and New Mexico. One thing that I know, especially for New York, for sure, is uh, the rescinding of the drug sentences around uh, marijuana, which, you know, is going to disproportionately, uh, which has disproportionately affected people of color and, and people living in poverty. That's also come on top of the legalization. Um, which I think is a really good thing that folks need to continue to advocate uh, for um, in the language of the law um, that they have, because it's very important um, that folks who have been spending time in, uh, you know, prison uh, for selling marijuana or smoking marijuana, ingesting marijuana, however they uh, did it, um, are now um, getting out. Um, for that, you know, crime, which is now something legal. Um, but I think the next steps will come not only with expunging people's records um, for that, uh, you know, quote unquote crime, but also like empowering people who have been disenfranchised through that previous law, um, you know, to actually have means around, you know, retribution and, uh, you know, I don't want to say reparations, but certainly some type of like extension of the the government to give folks a hand up um and and get back to you know uh work readiness and uh entrepreneurship um and that's whether you went to jail for it or not there needs to be like some implementation of entrepreneurship um training and uh support in communities um like let's say Kensington, uh, especially when you're talking about marijuana use, but I would certainly say just the war on drugs in general, which says, you know, we recognize that these policies have not been fruitful, have been discriminatory, and we want to give you an opportunity so that, you know, that person, like you said, that was made to do something uh, in a week, in fact, might have a month compared to people with more means having a week to do so so they can get their paperwork and get lawyers, you know, we'll appropriate you a lawyer, we'll appropriate you, you know, this much funding in addition to what you bring to the table, because we do recognize that you are in this empowerment zone, you know, and 
you know, this has been a zone that's particularly been impacted by a war on drugs and an anti-marijuana or, uh, you know, uh, approach to, um, you know, drugs um, in general. So I think that's like something we also should be, you know, thinking about as, you know, um, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, more places, um, you know, work to, you know, uh, not only, uh, you know, decriminalize um, certain amounts, but legalize um, the use. Um, yeah. My, my thing is always like, if you could tell me that, you know, all drugs are bad and that nothing is legal, it would be one thing. The fact that alcohol has been legal for so many years, despite the numbers that we have uh, around, you know, accidents and health uh, issues, uh, and it's still legal, but marijuana isn't, it's like, you know, it's like do as I say, but not as I do type of mentality. And, you know, not only is the properties of marijuana much more beneficial, but it just, um, although it's obviously not perfect as most substances aren't, um, it's like, don't like, you know, beat people over the head with the BS around. We want people to be healthy and safe, but marijuana can't be legal, but alcohol is. That's one of my major bones to pick about, you know, the, these substances like, you know, one has benefits uh, in so many different aspects and the other, you know, basically rot your liver away, but you can get one, it on every corner along with the cigarettes and the fatty foods and everything. But, you know, we care about people's well-being and don't want them to be hurt. It's a yeah. real oxymoron. <laughs> I, I need to correct. Well, not correct, but I need to I need to add to something. So I mentioned earlier that they had said 20 percent or less than 20 percent of businesses were owned by minorities and then less than 4% were African-American. That was in Colorado. Nationwide, less than 2% are owned by minorities of these businesses. So, so it's kind of interesting. I mean, I, I think we could talk for another hour on this, man. But, um, you know, I just, I just think that people- And we will to, at some other point. Yes. You know, and I, I just think that people, you know, need to, I, I, and I, and again, because I, I want to keep all, all aspects open in this conversation. You know, yes, uh, the legalization of marijuana is something that's happening. It's necessary in some cases. It's beneficial to some people in a lot of cases. But we have to look at what's happening within the industry, not only as to who's owning these industries and who's running them, where are they being placed, and how is impacting, as always, how is impacting poor people and communities of color and um and just people just need to be mindful and educate themselves and make sure that they have a, a clear understanding of what impact this has on us on our society as a whole you know the possibility you'll lose jobs the possibility that you're going to get a dui now even though you don't drink you know the possibility that <clears throat> i mean this could have a lot of and, and depending on what you're consuming and how you're consuming it you know, informing people, listen, edibles are a lot more, uh, a lot more powerful than you smoking it. Be careful. And in doing this whole harm reduction around educating people, hey, when you're smoking it in a blunt, do you understand that you're going to want to smoke more marijuana? Not necessarily because the weed is addictive, but more because what you're rolling it up in is, 
because it's high concentrated tobacco. It's higher, higher nicotine consumption, and you're going to be chasing that nicotine. You know, and just educating people about what is happening and not just, hey, we can now smoke all the weed we want because it's legal. Everything, they say that everything in, in what is it? Um, moderation. Moderation. You know, everything is, is accepted, but not everything is not necessarily beneficial, you know, and, and you yeah. have to be mindful, like everything else, like alcohol, like food, like cigarettes. You have to be mindful of how you're consuming and what is what is the impact to my health, to my my mental community. health, yeah. to my community. You know, if you have a mental if you have a mental health issue, you need to figure out, is, is this something you should be smoking? You know, what are you smoking? Because there's different grades and different types of marijuana Strange, with different yep. chemicals in it today. So these are all things that we now have to take into consideration and either educate people from a harm reduction standpoint, but also make sure that people, you know, that this message gets out there so that people are fully informed. So, yeah, definitely. And I think that, you know, us as harm reductionists also need to gravitate towards, you know, supporting, you know, this type of movement. Um, and, you know, that comes, you know, right now, um, but it also can come, you know, through uh, making sure that, you know, we advocate for the funding that's needed to uh, incorporate this into our programming. Um, and, you know, at large, we think about the unintended consequences, like you were saying, around, uh, you know, this legalization in many places um, and who it affects. Um, it's really around having more uh, deeper and thoughtful conversations. It's around having, you know, not to be cliche, but those hard conversations, um, yep. even though sometimes it might not seem uh, uh, appropriate, it's absolutely necessary, even when it's around something that many people would consider a fun topic like legalization of marijuana, for sure. And I just I just need to I just need to say this this little piece. You know, this is those hard conversations. And some of these conversations are hard to hear for some people, you know, but I just want to also make sure that that I clarify that if you have if you're listening to this and you have lost someone as a result of them taking their life and they were smoking marijuana and it contributed, just be mindful that, you know, we feel for you. Yes, indeed. And just the fact that we have to look at we have to look at how is it that mental health is also playing a part in this. What is the missing piece here that led that person to smoke, to be able to try to calm those voices or, or quiet the demons or just to be able to sleep? You know, that's what we need to figure out and not put a blame on, on a substance to be able to clarify because that takes away from the other things that were happening and the fact that we still do not have adequate care, not only for veterans, but for people in this country who suffer from mental health. Absolutely, and and thanks for bringing that up and providing that clarity, Elvis. Yep. Well, until the next time, I'm Elvis Rosado. I'm Clayton Rowley. And these are those hard conversations. Thanks for listening to THC. Follow us on Facebook at Those Hard Conversations. Or visit our website at thosehardconversations.com. <laughs>